Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. I'm speaking to you from my hotel in Los Angeles for the Los Angeles Podcast Festival where I am uh, thanks to the AMP Tomorrow Fund grant which allowed me to bring myself and therefore the podcast over here and it's a fantastic event. It's been really interesting. It's one of these very very human events. It's, I think, the thing that distinguishes this podcast festival from other more commercial podcast festivals is that there's no uh, delineation between the acts and the guests. People are just talking to other people. And uh, it's a fantastic It's a fantastic thing. It, I've met a bunch of people who listen to my podcast. Hello. And uh, I've met people to whose podcasts I listen, some of whom I already know, others of whom I'm meeting for the first time. It's a very strange uh, relationship to have uh, with people is that of podcast and listener. I've been reading fantasy novels um, quite heavily this last couple of weeks. It's coming up to uh, the date where my mum died. So I'm indulging in my particular form of addictive escapism, which is uh, reading fantasy novels. And bear with me, this is an analogy that's going somewhere. So in one of the fantasy novels I read, there is a wife um, who meets a man on this advent- and their adventure and, and he dies in the course of the adventure. They are sort of lead to secondary characters. And uh, at uh, he dies in the course of the adventure. And at the end, the kind of fix-it that she is given is she goes into another dimension or another timeline or another stream where he has a, had a different life and didn't meet her and didn't die, uh, didn't have these adventures. And he recognises her in some sort of profound way, even though he doesn't know her. And she, the, the implication is they, you know, <laughs> reignite or ignite a new relationship and it's happily ever after. And, I mean, in the context of the novel, I don't think that was a great, a great solution to the problem of death. But in, it, it provided me with a good analogy for the experience of meeting someone to whose podcast you listen or someone who's listened to your podcast because they know you and you sort of know them a little but it is they've had a you know they were in the room the whole time and now you're turning around and realizing that they were there and you don't you don't know them but you have a feeling of of recognition or or, uh, you know there's something there in the relationship that exists even though it's quite one-sided uh Anyway, that was that. Was that. Uh, and it's been a really fantastic time being here at the LA Podcast Festival. I hope it comes back next year. Uh, I wanted to tell you about my guest this week, and I also wanted to thank my Patreon subscribers. So first of all, my guest this week is Paul Gilmartin of the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast, which is a fantastic podcast. You should listen to it if you are interested in it. It is an in-depth discussion uh, about mental illness with people who have suffered or are suffering from mental illness and I think it's you know it's a really good thing it's a really good podcast because even when we have awareness raising initiatives uh, about depression for example the are you okay or Movember in Australia and others all around the world rarely do you have these kind of in-depth discussions about the experience of mental illness by the people who are having it uh, it's either a sort of an inspirational talk, but you don't have a, a conversation about what it's like and how it goes and what you've done and what you haven't done. Uh, anyway, it's a fantastic podcast. I spoke with Paul Gilmartin about 
uh, his podcast and about American politics, about the things that he has been wrestling with recently, including financial uncertainty and uh, a number of other things. It's a really interesting podcast. Uh, um, it was a really, I say it's an interesting podcast. That's a big claim. It was a really interesting conversation. I enjoyed having it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. I wanted to say thank you to my Patreon subscribers, particularly uh, the people who have uh, pledged $15 a month, and that includes a thanks on the podcast. So thank you to Cliff and to Joe who have subscribed And thank you to everyone else who has also subscribed. I will not name you uh, because I don't want to. um, I don't want to. uh, If you if you want to stay private, you can stay private. If you would like to be thanked on the podcast, just uh, send me a note, and I will do that. Uh, I I will thank you, of course. I I'm not sure. Do you do people want to uh, hear themselves named or not? Let me know. Uh, Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E or my email address which is alicerfraser at gmail.com. Let me know if you have a preference for that, if you prefer to be named or not named or if you would like me to change up any of the rewards on the on the Patreon is that if there's something that you would like or n- not like me to do. I, I do want this to be for you. Uh, I want this podcast to be something that... Uh, y- oh you know, my Patreon, I, I want you to feel like the rewards are worth getting. Um, if you if you like this podcast, if you want to subscribe to the Patreon, I write a blog there occasionally. I have a $1 post, uh, which is for subscribers. If you can't afford a, a dollar a podcast or if you can't afford a dollar a month, uh, email me and we'll have a chat and I can see what I can do for you because uh, that, you know, that would... I am I am rambling I'm sorry what I mean to say is thank you to everybody who has subscribed and uh, continues to support uh, the podcast and me and uh, the work that I do it means a lot it it is money is a symbol of something else in this instance which is you know that I'm doing something that is worthwhile to you and that's really good it lets me keep doing that I was talking about this. There was a there was a Patreon um, panel uh, at the podcast festival, and I was talking about how how difficult it is to express um, the appreciation for something like this, which is not not just money, but also a symbol of uh, something more than that. I've articulated that badly, but I hope you get the gist. I will stop rambling and get on with the podcast with Paul Gilmartin of the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Uh, If you can't support the podcast or don't want to support it uh, financially, um, you can also just uh, rate it on iTunes. uh, If you want to give it five stars, that would be lovely. Or if you uh, tell a friend about it or tweet about it, uh, again, at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, that would be fantastic. I'm in LA for another week. I'm doing uh, shows there. If you uh, follow me on Twitter, the details are on Twitter. Uh, and uh, then I will be going back to Sydney, and then I will be in London. I'll be doing the I'll be doing the live bugle show on the 16th of November if all goes well. And I hope to see you there or somewhere in the world or on the internet. All right. That's all. I think I've ticked all of the boxes, all of the things that I wanted to say. Uh, 
without further ado, the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, what? Who are you and what tea have you been drinking? Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin, and I go back and forth between uh, green tea. Dragonwell is my favorite of the green teas. Um, and I've been mixing a little... Um, Himalayan green tea in there. I don't really know much about it. I was just saw it uh, when I was buying some some of the Dragonwell online, and I thought, well, let's try something else. And uh, I have a bag of Imperial Green that I haven't cracked open yet. And then I, uh, as far as black tea, I like English Breakfast and um, uh, Yunnan Gold. Uh, those are those are probably my. Is that an uh, like an oolong, the Yunnan gold, or is uh, it a no? Black it's a, tea? It's it's a straight, straight black up black tea? tea, but it's really kind of malty, and it's uh, I think it's even better than than English breakfast because it's a little more um, uh, a little less bitter um, than than black tea. And do you do you drink coffee or uh, are you a tea man? Uh, I love coffee. I just it's not great for my digestion to drink a lot of it. So uh, I really just have like one cappuccino a week, and then the rest of the time. In fact, my my one cappuccino uh, was about a, an hour ago. So uh, I'm a happy man right now. Yeah, I, I don't. I've never been a coffee person. I have nothing against coffee people, yeah. but. Uh, I, my dad used to drink very, very strong, very black coffee. And so my earliest experiences with coffee were just, why would you? <laughs> and then now as a grown-up, I think, well, if I can avoid acquiring a habit, that's probably good. Yeah. Uh, how do you drink your black tea? Uh, I, I tend to have black tea straight up quite weak, uh, but oh I'm a green God. tea fan. That is, I can't imagine a worse way to drink black tea than <laughs> straight up week i like it really strong with cream yeah for me it's a bit too tanniny with the nah, nah. it makes your tongue feel furry and i when it's strong when it's too strong yeah i was kind of surprised when i went to england how uh weak uh the british serve uh tea maybe it was just the places i went yeah i think it's because for the british they won't drink one cup of tea it'll be like six or eight in a day so it's they drink it like water it's a it's a thing to do it's like a smoke break Oh, I'll have yes. a cup of tea. Does anyone want a cup of tea? Yeah. So you, if you had the, that strong, you'd be completely wired all day. Yeah. Which is not necessarily a bad not thing. Not necessarily a bad thing, but you want to you wanna pace yourself. And when I do the green tea, um, I love uh, slicing uh, fresh ginger and putting that in there. That, uh, that just makes it for me. Makes you just, happy? Yeah, makes me very happy. What have you been wrestling with recently? What what ideas? Shame. 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 You've been wrestling with shame. Shame yeah. and feeling stupid, um, and financial fear. All right, those are three big things. Well, well let's start with shame. Uh, I mean, shame can be a really good thing. It's kind of the guardian of a lot of good behavior. Fear of, fear Health, of shame. Healthy, healthy shame. shame. You, you're struggling with unhealthy shame. Yeah, or? toxic shame. The idea of shame or actual. Actual shame, actual shame. Um, yeah, I um, I didn't handle something well, and uh, I'm not really ready to talk about it yet publicly. Um, but you know, I'm kind of doing the uh, Monday morning quarterback, as they say, when you look back over it and go, "Oh, why did I do 
do that? Oh, why did I do that? And beating myself up for it and feeling stupid. But honestly, all of the quote unquote mistakes that I feel I made came from a place of um, excited naivete and um, um, just kind of bubbly happiness. Um, but uh, lacking boundaries. Um, yeah, okay, I see. And and do you, with shame or these kind of things, do you have a protocol for dealing when you know you've done something wrong? I talk about it. You talk about it? I talk it about it. With, with the person who's... I haven't done that yet, uh, but I've been talking to support group friends and my therapist. And... That's a good way to do it. I, My natural inclination is to run, is to just shut the door behind me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I try, on principle, to fall on my sword as quickly as possible. If I've done something wrong... If I if I can bring myself to it like as as quickly as possible, I'll go. This is what I I did. I yes. messed up. Yes, and and there is an apology um, coming for this person. I don't they I don't think they probably think that um, I did necessarily anything wrong, um, but um, I, I could be wrong. It was just kind of a a. Um, uh, just happenstance, you know, mm. just. Would you, when you say toxic shame, do you think it's disproportionate to the wrong yes. that you did? Yes. Okay. Yes. Intellectually, but yes. I feel the emotional shame. So you feel that. Yes. And then you feel embarrassed or ashamed that your shame response is so strong. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit. Uh, it's like but, meta shame. Yeah, you know, I think deep underneath shame is fear that I am inherently bad and everybody's going to abandon me or um, talk about me behind my back and that I will be that person who is, you know, quote unquote, stupid and doesn't know how just awful it is to hang out with that person. Well, so far you haven't been bad to hang out with at all, but I'll, I'll suspend judgment until the end <laughs> of the you. hour. Thank you. Uh, so that's how shame presents itself for me. But um, since I've been in support groups for a long time, it's also a chance for me to grow. It's a chance for me to self-reflect instead of self-obsess. And that the, the, the fine line between those two has been enabled me to grow and be more compassionate towards myself while also taking something from uh, an experience that was on the surface negative. Do you think that there is a, or do you personally draw a line between self-respect and self-esteem? Um, I've never thought about that, between self-respect and self-esteem. Well, I think self-esteem can lead to I guess they both can kind of feed each other. Um, but for me, self-care had to come first. I yeah. had to. And and before I could practice self-care, I had to stop numbing myself addictively with things to soothe myself as just a primary coping mechanism because that's what I learned to do in childhood. Um, and, you know, it's my belief, and I'm sure a lot of people would agree, that you can't practice self-care if you don't know what you want. And if you're numb, you don't know what you want because you can't feel. And you can't unnumb yourself if you are numbing yourself with addic- addictions. So it was kind of this 
domino effect of getting a hold of my addictions, healing trauma, and then getting back in my body and beginning to go, oh, I like this. Oh, I don't like that. And and finding that um, I would make my bed and floss and um, cook for myself and not tolerate toxic people. And all of those things started to build self-respect and self-esteem and, and self-worth and self-love. But it's not a linear or complete process. It's a lot of two steps forward, one step back. What does not tolerating a toxic person look like? Well, the biggest one for me was cutting my mom uh, out of my life. Um, we just didn't share a reality. Um, there was stuff that happened uh, that she did to me in childhood that um, would fall within the incest spectrum. Um, and, um, I think that'd be a great name for a band, the incest spectrum. (laughs) Um, and I minimized it my whole life. You know, my ex-wife, you know, would always say to me, you think you've dealt with what your mom did and the way she talks to you and touches you and looks at you, but you haven't. And I think it's affecting you. And she wouldn't, she wouldn't shame me for it. But um, I thought, oh, she just doesn't like my mom. But then when I unnumbed myself by going to the support groups that I needed to go to, I began to get back in my body and feel what I really felt when I would be around her, which was my skin crawling, feeling drained, feeling used, feeling like an object. And that's when I was able to put the pieces together because you could explain away one or two individual moments, yeah. but I suddenly saw the pattern of being objectified and, um, and in a, inappropriate things, um, that, uh, I had buried because a, a child will usually blame themselves because it's less scary than thinking I'm in the care of somebody that isn't safe. Yeah, well, until a certain point, your mom is your world for a while. Yes. She's your house. Yes. And then <laughs> then she's your world. And so to kind of cut that off, I imagine... It was the hardest thing I ever did. It's an it incredibly was... difficult thing because even even with all of the bad stuff, it's not a role that can be filled by anybody else. It's no. not a function that can be replaced by anyone else. No, and I looked. I tried. You know, it was subconscious, but... When I cut cut contact with her, it was hard because, you know, she has great qualities. There are things that that she did for me that are nice, uh, ways that she did help me grow. But um, I think to have a relationship with anybody, you have to share a reality. And there has to be a consistency of respect. And it wasn't consistent. And so I could never let my guard down because I never knew, you know, when when she would, you know, turn into the angry, critical, denying reality, um, not respecting my boundaries uh, kind of uh, thing. And I I just, I tried and I tried and I tried. And I know I'm no piece of cake to be, you know, to have a relationship with, but uh, I really gave it my best effort. And I finally had to practice self-care and say, um, you know, it's, I... I'm depressed for days after just even reading a letter uh, from her. And um, I've tried. 
I've made every effort and we don't share a reality because I'm sure her reality is different than mine. Um, and uh, it was the most difficult thing I ever did, but it was also one of the biggest touchstones for growth for me because I realized that I felt a freedom, a lot of guilt, but also a lot of freedom um, once, I, once I did that. Yeah, I think I was lucky in that respect in that my family's problems were all sort of, you could always point to an external source, which is that my mom was sick my whole life. She had MS. So oh man, that's that's heavy. It was It was good in that way because all of the difficulties that we had as a family and all families have difficulties, uh, it meant that we had a we had a thing to fight against together. And in some ways that can mean you, you put your own stuff aside. I'd, I'd say at the very least. At the very least. Uh, but uh, yeah, at the same time, I think that was a really, a really good thing for us as a family uh, to have that external, that external factor. It did mean that uh, when my mom died, I had to, I suddenly had to deal with being a, a person with no responsibilities, which mm-hmm. you would think would be a good thing, but can be an incredibly terrifying thing. Yeah, um, because who who I am I without this identity of the helper, right? Yeah, and on an existential level, what is my function? What is my purpose? All of that makes you wonder why you do comedy as a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you how do you make a difference? How do you feel needed? And do you need to feel needed? I don't I don't know, but I certainly do. I like to feel useful mm-hmm. at the very 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 least. I like to feel like I'm helping. Uh, I think that's the that is the uh, place to get to is that balance between being helpful, but not um, feeling um, stre- stretched thin uh, by saying yes to everything because you're afraid you're a bad or selfish person if you say no, and that it's a hard place to get to. But when I'm in that zone, um, it's nice because I have time to have fun and practice self-care, but I'm also helping. And from that, I get a feeling of meaning and purpose, which has replaced the search for money and recognition and that kind of dead-end alley that I was on for, for years. Well, you say it's replaced the search for m- money, but one of the things you were struggling with was financial yeah. instability. Yes. So it can't fully... I mean, you need a certain amount of money to live. Yes, how do you feel, I mean, as an Australian coming to an, to an American city, I'm struck by, every time I come, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that you guys don't have a safety net. That, you know, in Australia I have the freedom of if something fails, there's no, you don't die. Whereas here people die because they can't afford to go to a doctor or they can't afford... But word number one! <laughs> I'm so I'm sure. so no, I'm so nauseated <laughs> by America right now. I'm so nauseated by it. I've never been more embarrassed uh, in my life by who is representing us and uh, how we view ourselves, our arrogance, our um, lack of compassion, um, where we spend our money, and how much we've let. Um, the billionaires and the corporations determine everything. You know, Fox News has damaged America more than Al-Qaeda could ever dream of. 
Yeah, certainly. Thank yeah. you for that export, by the way, <laughs> Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> Can we ship him and all his uh, send him back. ideas back? No, we don't want him. Uh, you can keep him. Uh, we'll keep. Who will we keep? We'll keep the Hemsworth brothers. <laughs> we'll, we'll continue to claim them. Russell Crowe, we either take credit for or uh, assert that he was born in New Zealand, depending on who he's punched <laughs> this week. Uh, but I do like, I do like Australia. I was thinking this the other day. A uh, a man headbutted one of our ex prime ministers, uh, and the this Tony Abbott. I don't know if you've heard of Tony Abbott. He was mm-hmm. one of our prime ministers. Yes, we had about five in two years. So I would forgive you if you didn't know. Or I mean, I guess not all Americans follow Australian politics with the avidity that Australians fo- follow American politics. Given you know the guys with all the guns. Uh, but uh, this guy headbutted him, and Tony Abbott called the media before he called the police, and he told the media that it was about the same-sex marriage debate, that this guy was a same-sex marriage advocate deploying violence in the name of his beliefs. And this chap came out in the media, and I just thought it was one of the most beautifully Australian refutations that you could possibly have. He said, no, 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 it's not about same-sex marriage. I just don't like Tony Abbott, the filthy worm, uh, and then he said, I just had a couple of skinfuls and wanted to nut the cunt, <laughs> which is just, it's just beautiful. I mean, it's awful. You shouldn't headbutt anyone, but it was a sort of a really nice. If you're going to headbutt, headbutt somebody, uh, at least do it over a uh, an important topic. Yes. Where that person needs to become conscious. But I mean, don't even pretend. I, I think that's one of the things now where people are pretending that their violent urges are political. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they ever really are. No, po- no. P- politics is usually just an excuse. It's usually an emotional, an emotional decision. I mean, how else can you explain uh, the number of people that voted for Trump? You could not deny that he was crazy. So it 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 has to be an emotional an emotional thing because you're just ignoring fact after fact after fact that this guy is a loose cannon yeah he occasionally says something that is is uh, you know uh on target very mm. rarely but every once in a while um but it it that's the only way i can explain how how ordinary ordinarily otherwise intelligent people would would vote for this uh, this guy, I think there's a lot of repressed anger in this country. Yes. And he and was think... an outlet for it. He's genius at, at channeling people's rage. Yeah, he is. He's a genius. He's also a genius at the unfinished sentence, the ellipsis. I was mm. I was always really interested in the like dot, dot, dot at the end mm. of the sentence that lets you fill in your own meaning. It's the happily ever after. You don't mm-hmm. have to, everyone just fits their ideal world in to, to the mm. gaps in his in his rhetoric. But I, I, I read a really interesting article, and I'm not sure if I agree with it uh, because I don't know Americans very well, but that it was an idea about competing values, that the Democrats represent sort of a group's uh, responsibility mentality and the Republicans represent this kind of family, religious, old-fashioned, conservative mentality. And the thought experiment they posited, and I'd be interested to hear your mm-hmm. take on it as an American, was... What if it had been, instead of uh, Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, if it had been Al Sharpton for the Democrats and Ted Cruz for the Republicans? Oh, my God. 
would you have voted for Al, Al Sharpton despite oh, the fact that he's absolutely despite the fact that he's clearly mental? Yes, um, I don't know a ton about Al Sharpton. Um, I know that I'm I'm not uh, a fan of what I have seen of him. He seems to be a grandstander, um, uh, but compared to Ted Cruz, uh, Ted Cruz is uh, you know at least I feel like uh, I I might agree with a couple of Al Sharpton's policy ideas. Mm-hmm. I think they're both uh, megalomaniacs. Uh, I mean, but then isn't anybody that wants to be uh, president? This uh, is the problem with democracy. The people who end up in power yeah. are the people who want power. Yeah, That's it should this. be a, a, a lottery and everybody gets a day. Yeah, I think maybe a lottery that you get into once you've finished a university degree, maybe. Something that you reach a certain level of education or life experience, and then you get entered into the lottery. Or maybe it's babies just choosing, uh, pulling a lever, because it couldn't be any worse (laughs) than it is now. (laughs) I'd be willing to to give it a shot. Um, But uh, the issue... It is not between Democrat and Republican, in my mind. The issue is corporate power versus the people having a voice, uh, special interests versus um, the, the people having an outlet. Um, money has become so corrosive to our democracy that it is. It is. Well, you can see Bernie Sanders. You know, he's labeled by the media as a nut job. What, a nut job for people wanting access to college and to have a safety net? How is that for having um, some some more reins on uh, Wall Street? Which, it, again, Wall Street and Fox News have damaged America more than Al-Qaeda could ever dream of. Now, if you are somebody that has a big defense stock portfolio, you would disagree. But if you're an average person working three minimum wage jobs and still falling behind, um, but Fox News, I I I saw something on, on Facebook that was so brilliant. Somebody said, Fox News, billionaires paying millionaires to convince the middle class that the problem is poor people. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. I think the thing that struck me is that you guys still have slave labor yes like that your country is still run on slave labor if you cannot afford to live if you when working full-time or more than Mm -hmm. full-time that's basically slave labor except that you don't have to pay for their food and board yes that's that's the essential outcome there how anybody who calls themselves moral or talks about God could fight the minimum wage is beyond me. How they could fight universal health care. I don't understand it. And I sometimes I can't even think about it because I just get volcanic rage inside me. And I have to, I have to let it go because I can't. I can only do my part by voting. And... It, it it's um, I I honestly have dreams of uh, moving to another country if if things don't change. But I you know I'm going to stay and tr- and try to fight 
uh, for it, but uh, there is a it it just really seems to be sliding downhill. It becomes so divided, and with Fox News staying popular, and now Sinclair Broadcasting is poised to consolidate power and be you know Fox News on steroids, um, which will propagandize even more people um but but the reality is the democrats have been failing the working man they have offered nothing but platitudes for the last 40 years and they are while they aren't on the surface as disgusting as the republican parties the republican party they are absolutely disgusting they are um corporate shills and um they subverted democracy you know the the way they fucked bernie in the primary uh so hillary could get in there uh hillary is uh is uh, and i voted for her because she was better than trump mm. but she is um she she is just uh More she's all same. about she's all about herself and the and and the money but she talks a good talk and can occasionally do the right thing, but she. Oh, I have to take a deep breath, Alice. You have to take it's, a deep breath. Yeah, I think it's 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 terrifying and fascinating that there are corporations which have more money than many countries that are that are not accountable in any kind of democratic way. And they're not paying taxes. No, they're not paying taxes. It, yeah, it's. I, I've seen now because I'm part of the, you know the global comedian community a number of kickstarters up for people who are sick, and they raise funds by asking their friends and and the public for money, which is just a tax on nice people. Yes. Rather than on the rich, I mean you're still getting people to pay for other people's misfortune, but it's much less fair because the only people who are paying are the people who are nice. It's. It's a perfect way to put it, and it's sad. It's sad. Yeah. Uh, America is the capital of uh, what a shame. <laughs> it is that you have the wealthiest country on earth that is the least compassionate place on earth. Uh, by in ter- policy. In terms of, by policy. Tons of great people, but we have been, democracy has been railroaded by both parties. That's the that's the reality. And people who are still drinking the Democratic Kool-Aid really need to wake the fuck up and look at how they have gotten used to crumbs and accepted that um, that they they buy the platitudes from the Democratic Party, you know, Um, and it's it's gross. Do you believe that America is or ever was a meritocracy? Uh, I think it's had moments of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the seventies we were we were working. There there was a foundation in place where there was hope in the seventies. Uh, media consolidation hadn't taken place yet. Um, uh, you know, healthcare wasn't for profit yet. Uh, Nixon changed that, um, and there was a sense of integrity in journalism uh, before Rupert Murdoch injected entertainment uh, into into the news. 
and dumbed it down. Um, and the wealthy were paying about twice as much tax as they are now. The upper bracket was 70% in the 70s. And so we weren't in debt. And right now, our debt is spiraling out of control. Eventually, uh, there's a brilliant article by Chris Hedges in, uh, I forget which website it is. Um, And he is essentially saying sometime in the next 10 to 20 years, um, the value of the dollar will go down so much that it will it will no longer be the unit that um, the standard uh, for um, finance around the world. And when that is dropped, the dollar is dropped, America will experience a depression unlike anything they've ever seen before. And then we will really, really see it. And it's going to be at a time when there will be more hurricanes. There will be more droughts. We will need money even more. And who are we going to have? Sinclair Broadcasting, Fox News, saying that the problem is Mexicans. That the problem is, uh, you know... uh, The poor and immigrants. The taxes. That we need to cut taxes so more money can get to people. And, oh, Alice. Well, here's a hopeful story about the American spirit. Uh, I thought it was hopeful. In Edinburgh, I was in Edinburgh for the Fringe not so long ago, and I went up Arthur's seat and I met a lady at the top. Her name was Janet, and she was in her late 40s, a lady. And I said, oh, what brought you to Edinburgh? What brought you to the top of this mountain in the middle of, you know, a small country? And she said, oh, you know, I just decided last week that I was going to come over and I just, you know, took leave from my job and packed my stuff and I came over and I thought, oh, you know, she's she's had something. She's realised that her husband was cheating on her or her, mm-hmm. she just suddenly looked up from her job and realised that she's been railroaded into a life and then she's just cut loose and gone to Edinburgh because that's where J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter or wherever, whatever it happens to be. But I just thought, you know, I've travelled a lot and everywhere you go in the world there is a Janet, there is like an intrepid middle-aged American lady who's just decided to get out there. I think that's a really nice thing. I think that's a really nice thing about America, that sense that you, however fogged you may have been, however long you may have lived, however much you may have accepted things, you're still in control of your own destiny that you can. And I don't know whether that's hopeful or optimistic or unrealistic, but it made me really happy to meet Janet at the top of the mountain. Oh, that's sweet. That's sweet. My fear is that uh, that destiny will involve moving to Canada. (laughs) <laughs> I would love to live in Canada, um, but uh, I I don't want to uh, abandon the fight. Would... But I'm very cynical about how it can happen because the state of journalism in mainstream media is so lazy and so afraid of confrontation or being... Um, because access to the people we want to hold accountable for power is we've accepted that they won't do interviews where they're afraid they're going to be asked a difficult question. And um, it's, there's, it's so difficult to hold people accountable. And um, Would moving to Canada feel like failure to you? It would feel like success and failure. For one, I, I love hockey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I, it would feel very much like home. The few times I've, I've been there, it, it does feel like home. Uh, there's a humility in, in Canada that I would so long to experience 
um, you know, as a, as a nation. Um, but there's tons of great things that still exist about America. Um, and I'm not ready to give up on them yet, but I'm so tired of feeling cynical and frightened, honestly, for my country. What, what, what is the fear that you feel? Civil war. Um, Do you think that's a economic, realistic thing? Oh, I absolutely think it's, it's realistic. We are, um, we are four or five major catastrophes away, I believe, from there being uh, civil war. Uh, you know, obviously not breaking out in a stereotypical way, but an escalation of revolt, suppression, uh, propaganda, uh, and then just a cycle of it increasing to the point where um, a, a solution becomes more and more difficult because the truth uh, has become... Because there is no, no agreed-upon truth mm-hmm. anymore. Um, you know, when I think an agreed-upon truth vanishes, that's what one of the things that we had in the 70s was we believed the media. We trusted the media because um, the people that had FCC licenses, the broadcast corporations, um, were either held themselves accountable or were held accountable by the FCC uh, you know, there's a clause in having a broadcast license that you must do a certain amount of community good, and I don't see that anywhere in the in the major corporations. What I see is them taking the easiest route route possible, not wanting to upset uh, corporations which now own, you know, these multimedia conglomerates, and it's just, it's been consolidated to the point now where it's just too easy to buy politicians to fight the rules that would take your power away. Yeah, uh, that brings me, what you just said brings me back to something you said earlier, which was that you you can't be around someone who doesn't share your worldview. And it seems like... At least my reality. I, You know, I hang out with people that are conservative, but I won't sit down and talk politics with them because it'll just make me angry and I can't change anybody. Um, I'll try to have a, a civil dialogue with somebody, but um, I don't want to have a close relationship with somebody who believes that uh, um, being gay is wrong or that people having health care is wrong because I don't respect you. Um, but I can be cordial to yeah. you. You know, I can be at lunch with you maybe if there's uh, some other thing that we're that we're meeting for, but I can't you can't be somebody that I really open up to about about my life because I... You don't share a reality. I don't share a reality. And that's happening more and more now with these kind of siloed information yeah. uh, siphons where you'll only get one side of a particular story and you won't have access to the other side yeah. or you'll have access but you could never bring yourself to actually engage with whatever it is, Breitbart, or because yeah. it seems completely insane to yeah. you. yeah. But that seems to me, I don't know what the proportions are in America, what that divide is, but it seems like there's half of the country that is living in a different reality from the other half. How 
this could be the country that voted for Obama and then voted for Donald Trump is, um, you know, and Obama was horrible in many ways. There was a f couple of things that he did that were good, but he continued the normalizing of war. Um, he did not prosecute anybody from Wall Street. Um, uh, there's, there's a whole, you know, he did not uh, bring back habeas corpus. Um, there, he would have been considered a right winger in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Um, and that's what the Democratic Party has done is because they, instead of standing for what they believe, they have allowed the word socialist uh, to have shame attached to it instead of saying socialism is compassionate. Mm. And this country was founded on the idea that all men are created equal and that we should have compassion for each other. Um, and yes, have a free market, but have limits to it and and want your neighbor not to uh, have to start a revolution to have their basic needs met. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of, of putting it. Um, do you think it can be solved at all? Do you think there is a way out at this point, or do you think it's tipped over too far and it needs to crash before it can be rebuilt? I think... If it needs to crash first, I won't see it in my lifetime. Um, the only, the first thing that would have to happen would be, uh, it would, the lobbying would have to be addressed first because um, accepting money for access has become normalized among politicians. And all of those who can't see uh, how bad that is or kill you know kid themselves um that oh i need to do this because otherwise i won't get reelected well then go down swinging you know uh i've seen a couple of uh politicians who don't take pack money and uh they got elected and we need to i think we need to start uh holding those who do take pack money uh, accountable. It would be great to see them brought on uh, highly visible shows and really taken to task for how they have sold their constituency out for campaign donations. But until something is done, until there's campaign finance reform, I don't see any of this changing. I don't see any of it. I see it only getting worse. God, I wasn't depressed before we started oh, I'm this. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I've, I've, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to make this better for you, other than that this is really interesting to me. This stuff. Yeah. Uh, I needed to talk about it, though. You know, all, all, all kidding aside, uh, but I think about it every day, every single day. I think about this, and I worry. I worry for for my country because I don't see a way out because there is so much ignorance and propaganda, and. Um, and the people, the there's, yeah. There's no quicker route to madness and sadness than being confronted with problems that you can't solve, that you can't impact. And I feel like that's one of the things that's happening with the news every day, just presenting people with things that they can't fix, that mm -hmm. they can't help with, yeah. and no clear... Yeah, I mean, look at the Vegas shooting. Um, look at the way the media handles it. Instead of doing 
their responsibility, which is to look deeply and with detail into how we can change the mental health system. Not that that guy could have been changed, but that we're giving it our best shot, starting with kids to see that they understand how to express their emotions um, or that people are given the care they need if there's something uh, genetically or chemically wrong with them. Instead of looking in a detailed way with that, bringing senators and congressmen on and taking them to task publicly Mm. for voting that down and pointing out to them, this will continue to happen if you value a corporation having a tax break over people having health care. Until we begin doing that, um, I don't see that changing. So what they do instead is they care about how many viewers they'll get because they uh, can pornographize uh, tragedy. They can do all the personal account stories and that's become, all of these things have become normalized for us. Yes. I think this is a sort of a slightly side note, but I'm going to try and bring it in so it all makes sense. In the 70s, there was a a school of feminist sociology. It was called the Duluth model Mm -hmm. that believed that domestic violence by men against women was a function of toxic masculinity. And that became the prevailing idea about what what prompted domestic violence. It didn't really explain why men would then hit their children if they Mm -hmm. didn't didn't necessarily explain a lot of things, but it became the prevailing model. But that's an interest that's that's a really interesting thing because I think it ignores reality, which is that it's not just toxic masculinity, it's not about masculinity at all necessarily. It's about power and it's about controlling your emotions. About and feeling controlling... o- overwhelmed by a situation and not having tools to cope with them and not knowing how to communicate your needs and your frustrations. It's that, the, yeah, the re- the, the, your reaction to helplessness or anger is a violent one. Yeah. And maybe maybe the gender relations has something to do with who you take it out on. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't mind if you had scorn for women if you never hit a woman. <laughs> like, right. I don't... I think the problem there is is in in teaching people how to handle their emotions. It astonishes me that at no time in school do they sit you down and go, all right, this is going to happen in your lifetime. At some point you will be in love with someone who does not love you back. This is how not to be an idiot. At some point someone will love you who you do not love back. This is how not to be an asshole. You know, yeah. just fundamental yes. human relationship stuff yes. never gets never, brought up. Never, never. Instead we teach algebra. When have you used algebra? Never, not even in class. I was very bad at maths. Um, but, yeah, it, it astonishes me because it's always characterised, that kind of stuff is always characterised as political or religious or, you know, normalising a certain thing. There's a big scandal in Australia about this safe schools program which teaches people not to bully LGBTQI, uh, mm-hmm. etc. people. Uh and it's it's considered as bringing an agenda into schools that shouldn't be there. I mean, surely there should be an agenda in schools not to bully anyone because yes. they're different. How and is basic dignity a political issue? Yeah, it's it's not at all. It doesn't normalise queer lifestyles to say that some people are queer and that you shouldn't beat them up for it. Yeah. That doesn't seem to me like a controversial issue. Yes. And yet somehow it has become one 
And the same-sex marriage debate in Australia has been sidelined into that, basically. So the no-vote people, the people who do not want same-sex marriage to go through, there's no real good argument, given how marriage is nowadays. You can't argue against gay people having access to a marriage that is now just the expression of love between two people. It's no longer land rights. It's no longer about children. It's if it ever was. But Alice, what about their right to feel comfortable picturing it? Yes, yes. Uh, I I don't want to expand my imagination at all. But I mean, so they can't really figure out a a solid argument for that. So they've just sidelined the argument into this you know, but surely they'll be teaching our boys to wear skirts kind of stuff, it's, uh, it's, which is it's, a really interesting way to go about having an argument. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it, it, one of the depressing things about becoming more aware is you become more depressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, depressed so, people are not irrational. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the question is, what do you do to feed your soul so that you don't become despondent and you don't become cynical? I play guitar. I hang out with people who are like-minded. Um, I try to help where I can. I ask for help when I need it. Um, I try to stay present. I try to see beauty in the little things. I try to not take my life for granted. Um, and uh, I try to not give up, not only on my quest to be a better person but to um have a a better life for um the 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 people around me but it's not easy because my default is to just get depressed isolate and be resentful Mm -hmm. and then say something really cutting and snarky on twitter as if that's you know a way to fight things as if it's doing anything other than bringing up the share price of twitter right (laughs) helping Twitter advertising. I, your podcast deals with mental health. Do you feel like that is a helpful thing, putting that into the world? Do you I feel do. like that's a I do. a calling or a quest? Or I, I do. It's uh, you know I started it never imagining it would be the thing I would wind up doing full time. I started it because I went off my meds and uh, didn't realize when I wanted to kill myself that it was the depression. I was fooled by it. And I believe that mental illness is a real thing. I've been in therapy. I've been going to support groups and a psychiatrist, and I got fooled by it. And I thought, somebody needs to talk about this in a way that is compelling and interesting. Um, And so I thought, oh, a podcast would be the perfect medium for that. So I started it because I thought it was something that was needed. And um, it just kind of has has grown, and I now look at my life, uh, all the stuff that I've experienced that on the surface looks like what a shame, what a waste, you know, what a tragedy, um, and I say, oh my God, I needed to experience those things to be able to share the things I do on the podcast that helps somebody, and so. Um, it does kind of rekindle my faith that there uh, is a higher power or something beautiful and divine in the universe, be it chemical or energy or uh, conscious entity, but something that I can tap into that allows good to flow through me. And the byproduct of that is that I enjoy my life more. I mean, I love your podcast. I think it's really good. Uh, do you want to tell my listener where they can get it? Yeah, it's called the Mental Illness Happy Hour. And you can uh, go to the website, which is mentalpod.com. Um, 
or you can get it through iTunes or Stitcher or any of those uh, uh, podcast aggregators. And there's about 350 episodes up so far. I think iTunes will only list maybe the most recent 200. Um, but yeah, there's we have done a ton of different uh, issues on it. And um, they're a good place to start would be uh, we have a listener favorite list, top 10 listener favorites for from every year. So that might be a good place to uh, to start. But exactly. some of my favorites aren't on the top 10 list. So um, You should write a personal favorites list. I should, but it's kind of hard. It would almost be like picking your favorite children and then publishing it. Yeah, true. You don't want yeah, yeah you don't want to make the other ones feel sad that they've yeah. been left out of your top favorite list. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I believe in a, a higher power that brings good into your life. I think you're probably just a good person. But uh, either way, thank you so much for having tea with me. I appreciate it. Lovely rifles all, lovely rifles all.